Welcome to After the JAG Corps, Navigating Your Career Progression, a podcast for judge advocates leaving military service. After the JAG Corps assists officers transitioning from the military law practice by learning from individuals who have successfully embarked on new careers, providing insight on rewarding professional opportunities, job search strategies, resumes, the value of your military experience, and more. Now, here is your host, Tom Welsh. Today's guest is Joe Moyer. Joe spent four years and four months in the Navy, according to his LinkedIn profile, from August 2008 to November 2012. Joe, thanks for coming aboard and uh, welcome. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. So, Joe, tell us your interest in going into the Navy and your decision to leave when you did. Thank you, Tom. So uh, my background is I grew up in Pennsylvania. I went to college in PA. I went to law school at Temple in Philadelphia. Throughout my life, I've been interested in naval history, and it was something that had always sort of been something that had fascinated me. And um, when I was in law school, I had taken some courses in trial advocacy. I had a trial advocacy course with someone who had been a Navy judge advocate. And uh, it was something I thought, well, let me try and let me apply for this. So I applied for the Navy. I also applied for some other services, but I got picked up by the Navy and I accepted my commission and I went to ODS and Justice School in the fall of 2008. Looking at your profile here, did you start out in Great Lakes? Yes, I was in Great Lakes for a year and a half. And uh, it's obviously, I think, a very much a, a hidden gem in the Navy. For many who have the opportunity to live in Chicago, it's a very wonderful city to live in. So I was up in Great Lakes at the Naval Station there. I did a little bit of trial work, but predominantly during my time in Great Lakes, I was first at the boot camp working as the assistant staff judge advocate there, and then as the staff judge advocate for Naval Station Great Lakes. And then off to Afghanistan. Yes, and then I had an opportunity to go off to Afghanistan, which I accepted, and I left uh, Great Lakes in April of 2010. And how long were you in Afghanistan? About a year, yes. About a year. Yes. And it looks like you got to do all kind of incredible different stuff as a young lieutenant. I'm looking at here, it says you looked at the Afghan legal and security ministries doing assessments, worked with interagency representatives, Afghani government representatives, and you got the chance to speak. What did you enjoy or not enjoy about that job? You know, I think it was the most fulfilling work in my sort of career today in, in many respects. I think much of what I did there focused on two, I think, primary pillars. The first was working on transition of detention operations. At the time, there was the desire to transition the detention operations from the U.S. government to the government of Afghanistan. Much of that involved ensuring that the Afghan government had the right legal structure in place to transition detention operations. They didn't have the laws in place to really permit extended detention. I think at the time it was 72 hours, 96 hours. Nothing that obviously given the types of people you were dealing with was ever going to be acceptable or enable them to actually maintain detention operations. But also there was a capacity issue. So they didn't really have this sort of system in place to really have the type of trials that we might expect. They didn't have the sort of formal appellate review in place. So there was a lot of capability work that I did there. And that sort of fell into the second pillar, which was a lot of rule of law development. So working with them on, for example, improving the functioning of the Supreme Court in Afghanistan. And I think is my sort of, I referenced in my LinkedIn, that then led me to, you know, trying to do some work to improve the quality of, you know, there was always concerns about the competence and as well as the sometimes ethics of some of the judges, et cetera, in Afghanistan. 
So that led to my sort of desire to do some work to improve the quality of legal education in Afghanistan, specifically with the two law schools that were located at Kabul University. And then you went on to appellate government counsel. Was that an assignment or was it a choice? That was a choice. First, I did a clerkship at Code 51, and then I transitioned over to Code 46. And I really did want to get that type of experience, really, you know, sharpening your legal skills, your advocacy skills. So that was a really enjoyable experience, learned a great deal while I was there, worked with some wonderful people. So it was a very nice sort of wrap up to my time on active duty. Great segue. What went in your decision and when did you make it to leave the Navy? I think the decision for me was, you know, I had not necessarily ever planned to have a sort of lifetime career in the Navy. And I wanted to, you know, explore different things, explore different options. I certainly, for the remainder of my career, remain indebted to everything I learned on active duty, the experiences and and the friendships and mentorships that I formed in the Navy. But, you know, that point for me was, you know, let's try something else. And, And I applied for several different organizations. I got an offer from Deloitte, the management consulting firm, which has a sort of history of reaching out and trying to recruit veterans who are transitioning from active duty. I'll come back to that. But did you go on to a internship first or Deloitte? Actually, so Deloitte was first. And yes. Okay. Just precedent wise, it shows Mm -hmm. Navy, then your fellowship and then Deloitte. So you went to Deloitte first. You just said that they have a veteran outreach program. Is it mostly the 0304 level, or did you see at all levels of ranks that they were reaching out to? Mostly the 0304 level that they sort of recruit. It's typically designed to bring people in, typically at the senior associate level, and really work with them on sort of leveraging the skill sets you've learned on active duty, and then leveraging that in terms of becoming a trained management consultant. So you were there for four years Yes, with a fellowship in the middle of that. What were some of the things that you did at Deloitte? So I had a wonderful sort of opportunity when I joined Deloitte. A gentleman who had been in Afghanistan when I was there invited me to work on some projects with him. So I had just an incredible opportunity learning from him. He had spent decades as a management consultant, and I learned just a tremendous and still learn a tremendous a lot from him, um, just in terms of the discipline and the rigor and the structure of being a management consultant. Did work with him both on commercials as well as uh, government clients, applying different skill sets, learning really basics, you know, working on a strategy engagement, a process improvement, risk analysis, um, really learning the fundamentals of the profession of consulting. It's a term that you use sometimes very generally in terms of what people do. Management consulting, as I think about it, is a structured approach to problem solving. So you had a mentor that kind of brought you in here, or at least someone that you had worked with and networked. Yes. What skills did you have that he obviously saw, but what skills did you have that made you qualified to be a consultant or at least to get a start in a consulting business? So I think those of us who have been judge advocates, obviously we approach it with a very sort of good sort of structured qualitative analysis sort of methodology, right? So we're used to being able to digest voluminous amounts of information, cut through a lot of the issues, and then communicate that, you know, principally, I think, in more conventional legal settings to individuals who have a similar background, obviously, for example, arguing before a court. But I think, obviously, then communicating that, as we do as judge advocates, to non-legal audiences, I think that was something that I sort of found very attractive in consulting, was taking that sort of analysis and then, again, digesting it and presenting it in a way that was actionable understandable, and oriented to the problems that ultimately the customer is trying to solve. So Joe, one thing that we hear often is business 
They're about making money. They want you to be value added when you come. What kind of tolerance did you find working at Deloitte for the ability to cut your teeth in this new role? Well, that was the benefit for me. And, and I would say to all veterans, it was they're transitioning out, making sure you have some good mentors, is having someone who spent the time with me to make sure I learned the craft, really was able to sort of spend the time that was needed to understand, for example, how to create a deck, right? a good sort of polished PowerPoint presentation, right? Because some clients are more visual, right? So you have to be able to present information in something beyond a memo, a legal memo, right? So I think really being able to present information well to understand, for example, more quantitative analyses. I think having that sort of time and space and the sort of assistance and guidance, and I think Deloitte did a really good job of ensuring that the firm at large had training opportunities. Um, making sure you develop those skill sets, I think, was something that I think is important to really ensure that you are able to sort of continue to grow in your career, but also leverage the fundamental skill sets that we all acquired on active duty. I see here you did some work with the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So obviously, it was able to take advantage of your Navy and your military background to mm -hmm. bring some expertise to that project. Yes, I do think a sort of initial starting place, particularly for transitioning military, is to do work on sort of government clients just because there's a familiarity with it. So I think that's obviously a good sort of natural starting point in a sort of consulting career that I think makes a lot of sense. Joe, I see that you worked with a lot of Deloitte team members around the world. Did you get to travel in that job or was it pretty much you were D.C.-based or Arlington-based supporting them overseas? Mostly D.C.-based. I had the opportunity to lead a global team on a quantitative as well as a qualitative analysis um, that the gentleman I referenced before I led, which was a global defense outlook, which was a, a review of defense spending across the top 50 defense spenders, identifying policy trends, spending trends, allocation of priorities that had team members from principally from the Japan and, and the U.S. And in the middle of this, you got to do a fellowship with the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Yes. How did that come about? And I see that you ended up going back at Deloitte. So they were obviously supportive. But what was the interest there of doing the fellowship? This was the first of two fellowships I did in my career with the German Marshall Fund, which is D.C.-based, uh, but also has offices overseas, think tank. This was a national security-oriented fellowship, the Manfred Werner Fellowship. This was, I believe, at the time about a two-week fellowship that had sessions in Brussels as well as Cologne and Germany and Bonn that was focused on really understanding sort of transatlantic perspectives on defense issues. And of course, this was back in the 2014 time period, which only eight years ago, but you know, seems like a much longer period of time from today's lens. But really understanding sort of some of the perspectives that, that they had on particularly the security issues back then. One thing that German Marshall Fund places a significant emphasis on is sending U.S. persons to Europe to understand those perspectives and then vice versa, sending Europeans to the United States, not only just spending time in the sort of national capitals and speaking with the sort of and hearing the perspectives you share there, but also going out across into a range of settings and, and within different countries, but also you know, different types of different types of audiences, public, private sector, to really understand how business is seeing these issues differently from, say, your more traditional national security audiences. At some point, you left Deloitte and you went on to PricewaterhouseCoopers. Yes, uh, I did. And how did that opportunity arise? So um, this actually came about directly from my experience as a judge advocate. So while I was in Afghanistan, I worked for Pat McCarthy. When Pat McCarthy retired, he accepted a position at PwC within its forensics department practice. And I, um, he asked me to come work with him there. I obviously had been at the big four. I worked with him in the past. So 
I very much was excited to accept that opportunity and come work with Pat again at PwC. And how long were you at PwC? I was at PwC for about three years and some change. And it looks like you did some different things there, back to doing investigations, which we all do as JAGs. Is this more of a legal job than you had at Deloitte? It was uh, compliance oriented. It was interesting because for me, it was starting to bring together both the sort of more traditional legal experiences that we have as attorneys and and then as as a judge advocate. But then also sort of applying the management consulting techniques so I learned working on, on some engagements I did at Deloitte. So it was a very interesting opportunity to bring all those strands together in the more traditional investigations and compliance setting. And I see here that you were, this is where you started doing CFIUS work? I did a little bit of CFIUS work at PwC, principally was focused on third-party risk, anti-corruption, sanctions, compliance um, those types of engagements was where I spent most of my time at uh, PwC. And I asked that because I'm assuming that this was a building block for the role that you were in now. Yes, yes, very much so. Yes, very much so. And so you're now at Ankara. And what does Ankara do? It's another consultancy. I'm within a practice group that principally focuses on foreign investment reviews, export controls, and uh, sanctions. For example, within the context of foreign investment reviews, do a lot of work with companies. When you have a foreign company buying a U.S. company, to keep it simple, those investments may be subject or acquisitions may be subject to what are called national security agreements, which are basically agreed to between the U.S. government and the foreign company. Those national security agreements typically can contain a range of requirements about things such as integration limitations or access limitations, communications limitations. A range of governance requirements, for example, appointment of security officers or a security director on your board of directors. And they will also typically require some form of either an audit and or a monitorship. So typically in the role I fulfill, we're usually being brought in to serve as the what's called a third party monitor or a third party auditor to assess that entity's compliance with the national security agreement. So this is inside council identifying the need for this, and they're bringing in the consultancy groups. So you have a requirement to notify CFIUS that there is a foreign investment is occurring. And those, in that case, once the negotiations with CFIUS conclude, the typically the national security agreement will be struck, and that will contain the requirement for appointment of a third-party monitor, third-party auditor. Typically, their outside counsel will sort of reach out to the firms that traditionally provide these types of services, such as us or the company can reach out directly um, and request a proposal. We'll prepare a proposal that'll then go in. And typically the national security agreements will require nomination to CFIUS of the entity for their review and approval and or non-objection. I'm going to ask this question or I'm going to make a statement and it's going to sound kind of harsh. This stuff all sounds kind of dry. And I smile because when you think about your time at being JAG, yeah, you you get to wear a uniform, you got to carry a, a sidearm. But a lot of the things that we do and have done are pretty dry stuff, too. What is the joy or the satisfaction you find in doing this work? So I think it's a really great question, Tom. And I think it's an issue that many folks who get out sort of struggle with, right? Is that, you know, how do you sort of transition and how do you sort of, you know, how do you make this a successful and enjoyable career? I think one of the things that's really appealed to me about compliance is that you're really bringing some of the same skill sets that you, obviously the substance can be interesting. It can be, you know, dry, you know, it can vary by the day, right? But some of the same skill sets that that we sort of all remember from our times on active duty, you don't really know sort of types of questions or challenges you're going to have to deal with. 
you're going to have to work with a range of clients. You have to understand that, you know, at the end of the day, if there's a business that needs to function, that needs to function successfully, that needs to make a return for its investors, right? So you have to understand the business of the business is what it is. And your job is to help them do it compliantly. So there's really a need to really be able to understand and speak their language, right? So you really have to sort of understand what are the pressures that they're operating in? What are the sort of objectives? What is their business strategy? How do, you, how do they want to operationalize that strategy? And then working with them to embed compliance within that strategy. So I think if you sort of regard it from the approach of, I'm really doing the same thing I did before, just in a different setting. I think it can carry with it the same level of interest and, and intellectual excitement that, that we all remember. And it, going from these different jobs, I'm assuming that you never applied for a job online, but that these opportunities came through working relationships or other connections that you had. I mean, you already mentioned how you got to Deloitte, how you got to PwC, but I'm assuming with Ankara that this was another one that you had worked with somebody who said we had an opportunity or there was going to be an opening. Is that a fair yes. assessment? Yes, it was. He was actually a Navy veteran. He wasn't a JAG. He was a Navy veteran who had been at Anchor and recommended I apply. They were looking for folks and I applied and was fortunate enough to receive an offer and joined in late 2020. So you're a young man. I mean, you're not a young man, but you're not a Navy. Thank you for that, Tom. I appreciate that. Yeah. (laughs) But my point is, you know, one of the things that we enjoy or one of the reasons we stay a lot of times in the Navy is the security of knowing that I have a job. The, The military... If you don't have a job, it probably means bad things for the country. If you decide to go the government route, there's a lot of stability there. What goes into your decision of, I'm going to leave this company for another company? Is it money? Is it the prospect of the job? Is it more responsibility? What goes into that mental calculation of deciding to pick up and leave as a consultant? I think it's the prospects of the job. I think it's obviously the types of opportunities you're going to have, the types of clients you're going to have an opportunity to work with, the types of issues you're going to be able to work on. One of the things that particularly attracted me in my current role was the ability to work on these type of monitorships or to work on ITAR audits. I think the sort of opportunities is what I would recommend when people are looking at sort of what kind of role as a time to roll to something new, right? Think about what are the opportunities. I think early in my career, a mentor of mine told me, you know, it can't be a move from, it has to be a move to. So I think I would simply say that when you're thinking about what you want to do next, you know, make sure that when you're jotting down the reasons, you know, for and against, that ultimately your decision is based on why this new opportunity is attractive to you, not why you might want to leave where you were before. Talk about approaching compensation. So we go back to you leaving active duty. We all know that there's a taxable pay portion and there's the untaxed allowances. There's all the other things that you may or may not be paying the free health care for the military member. You maybe you're from a state that you don't have to pay state income tax. And now you're leaving to something on the outside. I guess the first question that I have to ask you, did you see a step back or were you able to continue right around the same quality of life standard? I don't want to say pay scale because there's there's differences because of those taxes and things. Take us through the compensation approach there and as you move from job to job. Sure. I know they cover, for example, in the transition programming, but it's always a little bit difficult and and different when you're actually sort of getting that offer sheet and you're sort of thinking about it. Like many folks, uh, Navy was my first job out of school, so I wasn't used to a salary negotiation. I had no prior experience with it. And I really do think that, you know, it's important to you know, do your research. I think it's obviously helpful when you sort of reach out to, for example, veterans who are within the organization and say, you know, tell me a little bit more about this, sort of what's the ballpark. 
you know, what are the sort of expectations at the level you're being brought in at, right? Maybe it's, maybe the level's not right. Maybe you have to ask for a different level, right? I think it's important, particularly in the private sector, to understand the sort of split between compensation, base compensation and bonus, right? So some organizations are better on the compensation, but maybe they're a little weaker on the bonus and, and vice versa, right? So I think really understanding and you know, having these frank conversations with the hiring manager and with the, with the people you're ultimately interviewing with would make the offer, right? Having those sort of candid conversations with them up front. What is the salary range for this role? Sort of what are the sort of differentiators? You know, understanding what their baseline expectations for their role are and then identifying, for example, how your additive experiences as a staff judge advocate sort of make your value add greater than perhaps the sort of, maybe you want to call it the minimal qualifications for the role. I think it's important in any sort of negotiation theory, have an expectation of what you're looking for, right? But really make sure that you're getting a sense from them early on what the range is. Because what you don't want to do is spend a lot of time going down the cycle and then ultimately get the offer sheet and it's nowhere near what you expected it to be. So my sort of general recommendation is, is have a conversation up front with the prospective employer about sort of where they see the salary range falling. Because ultimately, it's a negotiation. It's a back and forth. And you, know, you sort of have to go into it informed to, to reach an outcome that ultimately is agreeable to you. So would you do that sort of at the end of the first interview when they say, hey, have you had any questions and you show that you've investigated or researched the company a little bit? I mean, not the first thing that comes out of your mouth, but maybe is that about the appropriate stage to be saying, hey, what do you see if I'm coming on board, if we're going to continue the discussions, what the pay salary is going to be? Because I always hear that you always want the other party to talk money first. Yes, I think typically in, for example, a lot of the surveys that they'll send out, they'll ask you what your sort of expectation is. So, you know, sometimes, you know, you put a range down, but I think it's always worth then exploring a little bit more detail. You know, what's the range you have envisioned for this role? I think it's also important in today's setting. I think this, this compensation may be treated more broadly, right? So what are some of the other benefits that are, that are out there? What's the you know, for example, what are the healthcare benefits? What is the PTO balance? You know, what do you expect to accrue? What's the parental leave policy? Do you have flexible spending accounts for childcare? You know, what's the maximum you can apply to that? 401k contributions. You know, I really sort of approach compensation, not only from the base sort of element, but also more broadly speaking, what are the bonus opportunities? What are the other sort of benefits? And also, I think, you know, one thing that I've done in, in over my career is I've gained a couple of certifications, right? And, and having companies that are willing, willing to support the time and the sort of effort and the expenditure, for example, continuing credits for your law licenses, continuing credits, for example, I have a PMP certification and a CFE certification. You know, understanding how to approach those is also important because the, the, the fees for those type of certifications and licenses can certainly rack up very quickly. <laughs> Uh, you know, my concern, as I was sharing with you before we hit the record button, is sort of like if you remember in Seinfeld when Kramer was suing for the hot coffee, that they were going to offer him something like $50,000 or coffee for life. And they offered, they led with coffee for life and he said he'll take it. And of course, his attorney was upset. So, you know, you don't want to short, short sell yourself. And I have to believe that while the companies would like to have you for less than more, that they don't want to underpay you to the degree that in a six or six months or a year that you're looking to walk away to something else so that they want to be equitable and fair to what they think the degree of fair is. 
Yes, I think ultimately if, if an entity were to do that and, and you were to find out that an entity did that, I think it's probably an entity whose culture is not necessarily one you would want to be part of. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's usually a good indicator of the culture of an organization if they would do that. And I think that usually would should encourage some thought thinking about sort of whether that was the right move. What are the things, other things that we should be thinking about? You're you're an old man. You're the old man in this because you've gone through it. I haven't. So you're the expert. So please ed- educate us. Yeah, so I would say that, you know, first of all, Tom, I just wanted to say that I, I saw what you, you, you've you been doing on this series, and I just think it's a really remarkable, wonderful contribution. So I just want to thank you for, for doing this. I think it's it's very helpful, and, and I think these are very informative. Um, I've listened to some of the other ones you've done, and I think they're, they're it's, it's really great work. I would say that from a, you know, judge advocates who are thinking about getting out and, and they're wondering, you know, is this the right sort of next career step for me to go into consulting, to go into maybe doing corporate compliance type of work? And I would say, don't, don't undersell yourself. Don't undersell the types of experiences you have. Don't undersell the sort of approach and the value that you would bring to those type of engagements. I think certainly, look, the, the context may be vastly different, right, from what you did on an active duty you know, in terms of the types of services and, and substantive areas you're providing advice on, but the same sort of skill sets that you've honed are directly applicable. The ability to really sort of cut through very complex material and to present it in a way that's actionable and useful for audiences who, quite frankly, don't have a legal background, that's not how they think about things, is is invaluable. I think really sort of understanding that getting into the culture of an organization, understanding what makes an organization tick, what's the business of the organization, comes as secondhand nature to us. And I think from a, you know, more broadly speaking, I think the ability to take on any sort of number of issues that come up during the day, and it could be very varied, it could be radically different from what you did the day before, or maybe what you did that morning. And I think the ability to quickly sort of turn to and, and then solve those issues and to be able to handle that, but not forget what the issue you were working on before is something that also I think is, is something that, that's second nature to us. So, you know, I think there's any number of resources. I think there's certifications. I know, for example, you've just uh, obtained a compliance certification. There's a certified fraud examiner certification that those who are interested in can go into it. You know, certainly if anyone was ever interested in talking more about consulting or compliance, please reach out to me. I'd always be happy to be a resource. I think that, you know, it can be a very fulfilling, very exciting, very interesting career path for former judge advocates to pursue. And I would certainly encourage taking a look at it. Well, Joe, thank you, one for your compliments. Yeah, I, I told you in the beginning, this is a selfish endeavor ultimately, but what really makes it go is the fact that guys like you, who I never met until we got on screen here today, then found out we had some common, uh, common context. But people like you are willing to come on board and share your experience and share your knowledge of what you learned. And like I said, I, I said it with a smile, you're an old man in this and we love gout, we love pass down. And you're right, I've always felt that we've had a large void when it comes to pass down for JAGS writ large. And unless we're reaching out to do this, that's the only way you find. So I thank you for your compliments and I thank you for your time, Joe. All right, thank you so much, Tom. Have a great weekend. You too. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and tell your friends. After the Jag Corps is a TJW 50 Associates LLC production.